Okay. How should we <clears throat> open this episode, Julia? <laughs> I'll show you later. <laughs> Nate, ignore me. We're here today with a very special guest. Um, this is a very special episode, people. Because for the first time on the podcast, the people who live in Nebraska outnumber the people who don't. Go Huskers. All right. Yeah. Go Big Red. Wait, Nate, are you Nebraska born and bred? No, I just moved out here about a year ago. My wife grew up in Iowa. Also is, don't know where that is. It's it's next to Nebraska. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you, do, you do live in Michigan. You're kind of... Honestly, if you showed me a blank map and said, point to which state is Iowa for $400 million, couldn't do it. Not going to happen. Well, yeah, the, the middle states are tricky. It's true. Julia, okay. haven't you figured out no one's from Nebraska? Like everyone just moves here. Amelia's entire lineage is from Nebraska. Doesn't count. But yeah, okay. We're here with Nate Solon. Solon? Solon, yeah. Solon. Solon. Yeah. Mm, I haven't been saying that. I'm going to have to really ingrain that one. It's okay. It's it's sort of a made up last name. My grandfather's last name was Solomon and he shortened mm. it. He claimed for convenience. That's uh, what happened with my family too, Nate. My German family when they came over during World War II. That's what happened with my family. Horse. My dad shortened or changed his last name also for convenience. What was it before, JJ? Leibowitz. Wait, no. Oh yeah, that's true. Your name is JJ Leibowitz, or it should have been? Yeah, we have established that all of our families were playing on alts. <laughs> Wait, Nate, are you also Jewish? Because that explains me and JJ. Why is your family changing their name? There were some cheating, online cheating allegations over in Europe <laughs> that we wanted to distance ourselves from. <laughs> <laughs> so savvy. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. Okay, we're here to talk about other things. So we're here with Nate Solon to talk about alt usernames, last names, and openings. So Nate, recently you wrote a provocative blog post in which you told us, the readers, that... Not that one, JJ, the other one. <laughs> I, have so, I have so many provocative posts. I know, but we can't talk about that one, Nate, on the pod. Um, <laughs> we're trying to go for a more wholesome spin over here, you know, get that Stouffer's sponsorship. <laughs> that Stouffer's money. Okay, JJ, so talk about the openings post. Well, I was going to say, Nate, tell us about this post. The uh, attention-grabbing, clickbaity headline, I believe, is that we are studying openings wrong. Who were you thinking of, Nate? Who did you have in mind specifically when you came up with this blog article idea? And why was it me? <laughs> I do I do actually have some thoughts on JJ's openings, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> Juicy! Yes! Yeah. I don't. No, I just think... 
I think openings are one of those things that people are just like confused about it. So, I mean, famously, you hear this all the time. People study the opening too much. Maybe they're, you know, they're memorizing too many long sequences that are irrelevant. So that's sort of one side of it. Mm -hmm. But you also hear quite a lot of people say, don't study the opening at all until you're X rating. Like, don't study the opening okay. until you're 1400 or 1600. I don't know. I've heard different numbers. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that really makes any sense either, because like if you consider that every chess game starts with literally the same position, I don't know if you guys were aware of this. Allegedly. <laughs> um, no, JJ, I was watching you play 960 the other night. Yeah, but it was the same position. It was just different. <laughs> no, well, yeah, nine, 960 is, is a different animal. But right, like the idea that you would just have no plan for how to start the game clearly makes no sense either. If you take that one literally, that's clearly wrong as well. So I think there's got to be some sort of middle ground and maybe more to the point. Like, I don't, I think it's less about studying the opening, like more or less in terms of time and more, how do you study it efficiently in a way that actually works and translates to getting positions you like and getting good results? So I think my first question here is even not to sound too Jordan Peterson, but um, what even is studying? Because, you know, if the claim is don't study the opening at all, then yeah, but then those people are going to say, no, you're like making me sound crazy. All I meant was you should learn your principles and then give some specific idea. Don't study lines and variations, right? Yeah. Or like, you don't need to know anything but principles. But then what about when the principles come into conflict, blah, blah, blah. So they're going to say, well, you can learn principles of the opening. You can look at math model games that have openings. So you're still learning things that are applicable. You're just not studying the opening. So yeah, I guess my first question is what's studying the opening? Yeah. I was. I mean, to the principle, like I'm definitely a fan of learning principles, but I mean, you're at least going to decide whether you're like an E4 or D4 player, right? One would hope. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. Actually, JJ, you say that as a joke, but have you gotten there? Who no. are you? What are we'll, you? We'll get to my openings later, but that is one of my problems. <laughs> I'm a secret third thing. Uh, C4. Yeah. So ba basically, I think even with the most minimalistic approach, you're, pro you're probably going to have some like moves that you've prepared that you play more often than others. Right. And that, yeah, as far as studying, well, there's, there's different ways to do it. I mean, clearly chessable is a big one, you know, drilling the courses, also opening books, kind of a similar route to chessable, but you don't have that space reinforcement set up. Also books don't sponsor us. Correct. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like reading books or courses, there's like drilling specific lines and this chessable thing studying model games i would say playing playing the opening i don't know if that counts as studying that's like practice that's definitely very good um i would say like playing training games in a specific opening is mm. an underutilized technique so you know if i'm going to learn a new opening i would not like to spend very much time at all just purely studying lines before i start playing it and it's really nice if you have a friend or training partner because you know if i want to practice i don't know say the Karakon and I start a game, like I might not get black or my opponent maybe will play D4 or C4 and I can't play the Karakon that game. So it is nice if you have someone you can just go like, hey, I want to practice the Karakon. And then maybe ideally play like a rapid, you know, not three plus zero, which is not going to be a great game for most people, maybe like a rapid game or even, even a slower game potentially. I kind of like rapid for opening practice though, because I think it's a good mix of get to think a little bit, but still get like sort of when you're learning a new opening, it's nice to have volume in terms of just... Mm -hmm multiple games, multiple positions, just kind of seeing the patterns that come up. 
similarly to that, I also have had some friends who have said like, hey, I'm trying to learn this opening. Do you want to play some rapid games switching colors in it? And there is something to be said for like getting in the head of I'm going to play the other side of this opening. I'm trying to learn and make sense of like what jumps out to me or what I would or wouldn't consider. And that's something that even just flipping the board or playing the other side of it can give you a perspective that reading the books doesn't. Such a good point. Nate, I'm curious if I click the bait of your title, what do you see people doing that is, I guess, different than that or or is wrong, quite frankly? Yeah. So one of the biggest ones is memorizing too many long variations. So I see a ton of people doing this. So on Chessable, right, there's these lifetime repertoires that are very extensive. Many of them are made by like Anish really Geary. strong experts. Yeah. yeah, many of them. It, you know, Wesley So E4. So these like very long repertoires, which I think they're really good if you know how to use them. I mean, the quality of analysis is very high, but I see a lot of people trying to memorize them like cover to cover. And I would absolutely not suggest that. I would say learn the quick starter, which you can watch the video and learn the lines in like an hour or two. And then I think the way to go is use the rest of the course as a reference. I don't think attempting to mem. I mean. Well, first of all, if you try to memorize like all those lines, you'll probably just give up at some point. But but even if you could, I don't really think it would be a great use of your time. I think you want to get sure. a core that allows you to start playing and practicing and then kind of fill it in as needed using the rest as a reference, which I always I mean, different people at Chessable and different strong players have told me that's how they use it as well. So I think that's a good way. I just I don't know, you know, especially newer players might look at that course and think they're meant to just try to memorize everything. Yeah, I definitely have come across a lot of people who are doing that or they're always buying a new course because like you, men you mentioned being overwhelmed, which is a good point too, which is I think they start doing it or even they just do the quick starter, but then they never get back to using it as a reference material. Or like they couldn't tell you how many of those lines they've seen in their rapid games or not, or they don't go back to see if this line is there or something, even though they have the course. And then they're not even getting that gem out of it because, you know, they burnt out before they got to that chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's something that comes up too. And do you think that this is like Chessable is a really easy source to pick on because they really market the hell out of these lifetime repertoires, which are super dense and there isn't a whole lot of instruction like on the site of how to use them properly. Um, but do you think that this is something that like Chessable is exacerbated or do you think this was going on in the Stone Age with books as well? No, it's totally going on with books too. Like, yeah, chess books in general are way too long. Like they just have way too many lines. And I think it's largely a convenience thing for the author, right? Like if you want to write a chess book, it's quite hard to come up with an entirely new way to think about chess. But for a grandmaster who works on openings anyway, it's pretty easy to just make a file for another opening and then sort of dump it into a book. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think, you know, you see that a lot with opening books where it's just kind of like a dump of their chess based file with some annotations. Yeah, I don't think that's too helpful for most players. Like lots of opening books, they're like multiple hundreds of pages long. I feel like if we're talking about people below master level, 10 pages would probably be fine, quite honestly, or, <laughs> you know, maybe 20. I'm just trying to say like, they're not just like a little bit too long. They're like way, way too long and way more than you need to know. And then for above master level players, they're probably doing their own opening research anyway. So yeah, I just don't think these super long opening books are really that helpful. Yeah. So if I was trying to learn a new opening, would you say that I should probably just avoid books altogether? Are there any signs that maybe besides being very short, are there any signs that this book I'm thinking about buying or torrenting is going to be helpful for me? Yeah, I wouldn't say avoid books altogether because I do think having a source is really helpful because to just go in with no knowledge whatsoever and just try to figure it out from the engine or the database. Like raw dog it. <laughs> 
No, yeah, it, it's hard to raw dog it because there's a whole history there. And you'll see, like, it's so hard to orient yourself. It is hard when you raw dog it. <laughs> it's dangerous. Sometimes it just feels so right, though. <laughs> I started playing around with the Budapest, and I just decided I actually didn't want to learn any theory beyond move three. And I would just wing it for a week or so. And it was quite fun. Also, but tell me this, though. Did you find that your results were any worse as a result of that? I have no idea, <laughs> Nate. It was a blitz bender and I yeah. never thought about it ever again. Okay, well, what what I found is like when I switch from, you know, some opening that I spent like a gajillion hours like learning lines right. to some like random jambit that I prepared in a half hour, at least in blitz, my results do not seem to be any worse. Now that you say that, I think I totally agree. Maybe I'm not as confident to quite put it that way, but I definitely can say that when I do the opposite and I spend a couple hours and I try to really learn a bunch of variations, it doesn't seem to help me, right? Like, what are the odds that I'm actually going to go down any of these lines or remember them? I certainly am not seeing a huge boost in my rating or, okay, I won the next 20 games. If anything, when I'm learning a new opening, even if I'm doing that, my rating definitely takes a hit. So I'm certainly not benefiting. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the core of it is like, yeah, you can memorize lines all day, but it doesn't really seem to help that much as far as improving yeah. your results. I've even seen people post on Twitter and basically say, when I actually analyze my Leeches account based on what opening I play at all, I'm not seeing any difference between my much beloved rep versus when I'm playing literally random gambits, like you said. So it almost makes you wonder how much does the opening even matter, at least compared to the pedestal we kind of put it on. I'll go even further and say I have several students, 1200, 1400 level, who have shown me statistically significant stats that when they get put out of book or like white versus black or when they're in what they're comfortable in or not, that their results are significantly better. And to me, I'm like, well, that's even more proof that you're studying the opening too much. Like you shouldn't be scoring that much worse mm. outside of your repertoire because it's not like your repertoire is full of these really sharp traps or something. It's just like when you get out of your repertoire, you don't play simple, good developing moves, even if your repertoire was just full of simple, good developing moves that you still memorized. So it's like, even if there is a difference, it's like, that's almost worse, not better. Yeah. So I think another thing you hear a lot is the opening doesn't matter. And I think, I think it does matter, but like maybe in a more subtle way than people are thinking of. It doesn't matter in the sense that if you're playing a fairly tough opponent, you'll rarely win the game outright or get a huge advantage directly from the opening. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of comfort and confidence and sort of mm. playing on your home field, it can matter a lot. Just knowing where you want to put your pieces, maybe knowing a right. couple typical plans, just there's such a huge difference in how it even feels to like be at the board and look at a position if you're coming in like, okay, this looks kind of familiar. I kind of know I've got a little bit of a game plan here versus I've never seen anything like this before. I'm just trying to solve this position from scratch. Yeah. And I think what you're pointing to there is that maybe what you're saying is that in addition to this idea of don't study too many lines, don't memorize too much. There's also this idea of what, well, what actually is the goal of studying the opening? And it sounds like Nate, what you're saying is that a goal is to feel comfortable in the sorts of positions that arise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Feel feel comfortable, feel confident. And then to kind of speak to that though, Nate, how do you start to feel comfortable and confident? What I hear you saying is you do not achieve that by memorizing lines for six hours and then maybe trying to play it based on that study time alone. You have to play the positions. You mm -hmm. have to play the opening. And I like what JJ said, play it as white, play it as black. That's how you achieve the comfort level. And maybe that's why that piece of the puzzle is more important than just rigorously trying to memorize variations. 
Exactly. Yeah, I think memorizing the variations in a way can even take you out of your comfort zone because mm. then when your opponent doesn't follow your lines, which of course they won't. Yes, I love that. Then like you're already on tilt because you're like, hey, you were supposed to do this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you don't know how to react. And even if, even if like by some miracle they do follow your line, the line still ends at some point. You know, you don't just like checkmate them in your preparation usually. <laughs> You'll have to like, there's no getting around like playing some sort of chess position. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And then so what it sounds like, Nate, is that also by tending towards that memorization and the studying of the variations, you might actually be starting to build a type of reliance on the lines and on the memorization. So as soon as you're out of book or it runs out, it can actually create a bit of a discomfort where you feel totally lost, where it's like, no, this is chess. This is what we're here to do. That's such a good point. The idea that this idea of a comfort zone can itself be like a false front is a really interesting yeah. point. Yeah. And I do, you know, I definitely hear students or, you know, parents and stuff say like, oh, well, like he didn't know that opening. So that can become sort of like an excuse of like, mm -hmm. you know, I lost the game because I didn't know the opening, but I don't usually very rare like i would say i've had very few tournament games for myself where i felt just completely happy with the opening like i knew everything i was totally comfortable with how things went like you know i knew all the plans it's really at some point you're out of your comfort zone like it might be sooner or later but i mean yeah usually you just you have to play chess at some point so you are gonna have to like solve your own problems you know and if people think they can solve this by knowing more about the opening but that really you know that that might just push your theoretical knowledge like one move mm -hmm. down the road but it's not really going to change the fundamental situation i think nate something else that people get at when they say like oh well i didn't know the opening is they might be trying to say not just well i haven't memorized my 500 variations here but to say well as an e4 player with white when black plays d4 i'm just less comfortable and like I've looked at this stuff, but it just doesn't come as naturally to me, or it's not the kind of game I like, or even worse, I'm just more of a tactical player. And so I don't like playing against D4, even though I feel just as prepared. So I was kind of wondering if we wanted to get into this idea of uh, <laughs> opening as identity. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah. Well, I think that's a huge part of like why people love to study opening, why, you know, you can just tweet like, anything about the London or the French and it just like automatically goes viral. Like, Let's you know, the this. opening in general and certain certain openings specifically are like these like trigger points somehow. But yeah, I think that's what people love about the opening. It's like having a car or like shoes or something that somehow expresses your personality. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's fine. Like it's good to have fun with it. About D4, I would like, there is actually a lot of sort of club level players that really don't like to face D4. And I think there's actually just a really good statistical reason for that, which is D4 is way less common <laughs> below, I don't know, maybe 1800. The farther up you go, like D4 starts getting more common. And then at some point you start seeing more C4 and knight F3. Which is really bizarre if you think about it, because Stockfish says that D4 is actually <laughs> uh, the highest evaluation for white on the first move. So what do you think is going on there, Nate? Are there just faulty beads? They're just not getting the right vibrations or what's happening there? I think um, I would say E4 is the most like full steam ahead direct way to try to win the game as white. But chess is a draw. So when you go full steam ahead and try to force a win, you have an early confrontation. Black has adequate resources to neutralize it. So so, you know, in the main lines after E4, what you see is this sort of explosive confrontation, a lot of tactics, but ultimately everything gets traded and it's either a perpetual check or a drawn endgame. And that happens relatively quickly with E4 because it's sort of more combative and confrontational. 
So I think what's going on with the engines is like they can kind of see that. And like D4 is like the little bit sneakier approach where you kind of move around for a while and try to use the first move advantage in a more subtle way, which is also a draw, but it's a sneakier draw. I feel so red right now. Nate, with your description of chess, of you just play D4 and kind of move around for a while. <laughs> but thank you for taking my question so seriously. I, I was half joking because JJ and I love the anecdote where he had a mm. student who... Uh, Not a student. <laughs> Somebody at a tournament was like complaining to me that they thought maybe their coach wasn't a good fit for them because... Um, the coach wanted them to play Queen's Gambit declined against D4, but they looked on Stockfish and Stockfish <laughs> said that Knight F6 was the best opening against uh, D4. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that was his black rep, Knight F6. Stockfish said that this is... That was my that was my horror story. <laughs> okay, what one other thing though that is super overrated is the idea that you really have to go out of your way to do something bizarre in the opening to create winning chances. Mm-hmm. If you're not I am or above you don't draw any of your games anyway, right? Or if you do draw, it's like some weird thing where both sides were winning at some point and the game just happens to end up in a draw. Like you don't have to do anything crazy to win. Like the only thing you have to do to win is play a bunch of good moves, which is hard, (laughs) but you can do that from any opening. You don't have to play some weird, crazy opening to create winning chances. Just because at that level, your opponent is so bad that they will inevitably botch it. And then you just play the next to last mistake, right? Oh, (laughs) I mean, there's just not that many draws in chess below a certain level. Just very few games are drawn. That's kind of true, JJ. I don't see you drawing enough as someone who claims to love the draw. Oh, well, I love the draw. I love the draw as like a platonic ideal. Like and no particular game should be a draw because neither me nor my opponent has played well enough to deserve a queen draw. So I completely agree with Nate there. And that is also a nice point that sometimes this also gets into the problem of uh, the mill of always coming up with novelties or new suggestions or fashion of how to play the opening, which is a great way for more professional players who might need to be doing something a little bit offbeat or fresh or something. Okay, yeah, here's here's another overrated slash misconception is the the idea that you need to like mix it up and have a varied repertoire where there's multiple things you can do against everything that's kind of true at like international master plus level probably because you have these psycho grandmasters like targeting you with specific preparation but like if you're playing in normal tournaments in the united states you have multiple rounds per day your opponent um might only have like has maybe a few minutes to prepare for you like if you really want to you can create anonymous burner accounts online so they can't even find your online games but basically it's just hard enough to play one opening well so like the idea that you are going to master multiple overlapping openings responses to the same thing to sort of prevent your opponent from targeting you with with preparation like it's just it's not where i mean you can learn multiple openings for fun but like it's you don't have to do that from a practical sense so that sounds like a great segue into my next question which is nate i would like you to evaluate whether i am learning openings wrong i don't know if you have any sort of general questions or a checklist or if this has been turned into a course yet Okay, right. So maybe I should ask you a little more about your opening repertoire. So Jay, I know you were playing the are you still playing the Catalan? I know you were using the Catalan at one point. Yeah, I think that in serious and slower games, I usually play the Catalan with delayed C4. Okay. So like the Christoph Selecki keep it simple thing. Exactly. That's okay. the that's the baseline. My first thought was so it may be that you settle on something that that works for you, which is where you want to be. I had the impression that for a while you were switching around quite a lot. 
quite okay. a lot. So that's maybe my first point is I think most people probably switch openings too much. There is like, there's a balance there because I don't know, like Ben from Perpetual Chess said he like played the scotch for years because his friend when he was 12 said that he liked to drink scotch. At age 12? Yeah. Ben grew up fast. There are other issues at hand here. So if you find yourself in that situation, maybe you should switch your openings. But for most people, I think they switch their openings like all the time because there's like a sort of grass is always greener thing going on where Mm. just going to the next opening they think is going to solve all their chess problems. That's a great point. I've done that a lot. I have changed my openings a lot. Right. So if you don't feel like an opening is working for you, you can either switch or you can get better at that opening. I think getting better at the opening is massively underrated and should be sort of like your go-to first step. But then doesn't that kind of create a little bit more pressure potentially, Nate, to feel like you have to choose the right opening then Mm -hmm. to say, okay, before I dedicate myself here and I'm going to kind of lean into improving this opening rather than looking for things that fit my style better. So how does someone maybe even undergo that process of saying, okay, this is the opening I want to stick with at least for a little while? Yeah. So I would suggest kind of a two-phase process of do some exploration to find something you like. But then once you've invested a lot of effort in it, then stick with it unless unless it really becomes untenable. So I would say it's it's like, you know, when you're single and you're dating, like you should date around and like oh yeah, meet a lot of people and find That's someone you I like. Do. But then uh, once you're married, you should try hard to make it work. Oh, okay. That's, oh, yeah, good that's what I do. Yeah, that's the (laughs) basic framework with the openings. Like, try a lot of stuff, play a lot of stuff in Blitz. Once you've invested multiple months in learning an opening, it starts to, it gets really costly to switch. Yeah, and I guess that was kind of my question is, when do you decide which opening you want to marry? What what are some of the things you might be looking for to say, okay, I'm ready to get down on one knee here? When did you know she was the one? This is going to be like very not data driven, but I think just which opening you like is, is honestly the biggest thing. Like, you like playing the positions, you look forward to playing it. Because it's hard to have really a relevant sample size of like, oh, I score super well with this opening. I love that answer, Nate, because that's such a good parallel then to our analogy of getting married, right? It's like when you know, you know, when you fall in love, you either know or you don't. And if you don't keep dating. But what if you and your opening don't want the same things out of life? Like you're having a lot of fun together and it feels good, but you know that this opening is just like never trying to get out of club level and you are. Like you want to win, JJ, but the Benoni wants you to get trashed. I was about to say we're getting into the Benoni. You know we're going to talk about Oh, I was thinking like I might be having this problem with the Benoni, but I think other club players, they might like a lot of positions they get out of, say, the Grunfeld, but they might not have ambitions of becoming IMs. And the more they get better, the more the Grunfeld really might be trying to take them in directions they don't want to go in terms of, you know, playing it as they get to higher and higher levels. It's not just me and the Benoni is all I'm saying. But yes, that's what I was talking about. I think the Grunfeld, like, you know, the Grunfeld or the Nidors of the world, these really theoretical openings, I think it's okay to just play them and sort of grow with them. You know, like you and your partner will, will grow as individuals in your marriage. Oh, is that what happens? Well, ideally, ideally. Um, as a couples therapist, I have things to say about this name, but keep going. <laughs> you don't you don't have to know all the 30 move four straw lines right away. You just have to know enough to like use the opening at your level. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to get into main lines, it's kind of good to get into them early. So you start getting that experience and like gradually building it up. I think that also kind of fits with our analogy too. It's almost like you don't need to know everything before you commit, but you should like the opening enough to be curious and to want to play with it. <laughs> 
no specific pun intended. And so you might not know the 30 line variation at the beginning, but as you play more games and you continue to study to it and commit to improving to it, you'll learn some things along the way. I, th- I think I want to hop in in defense of switching it up, not because I think it's an actually good thing to do, but because I think that it's just really hard to kind of even just know what feels good when it comes to the opening, because for many of us, losing doesn't feel good. Getting a particular variation might not feel good in an opening that's usually fine. Starting to realize after spending months studying an opening that, oh crap, I don't know if it's a statistical anomaly or not, but five of the eight times I've played this OTB, I've gotten this one variation. Um, And it's not one of the ones that feels good. And even if I try to learn it better, that just doesn't feel comfortable. I don't know, for instance, you're a Carol Khan player, but you like the open kind of takes on E4 positions and you don't like the advance. And the more you start playing, the more you realize how many advances you're getting. Now, just to ask the question, like, did you find an opening that feels good or not? Should you switch because you keep getting this or not? Like you could say, learn the advance better, but okay, what if you just really don't want to play a position like that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's usually always at least one line that kind of bothers you with any opening. So I think, you know, and and sometimes you can fix it by finding a new way to respond to that. I, have you ever heard of this thing called FOBO? FOBO is fear of a better option or fear of the best option. Oh, fear of missing out. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of that of like, mm. I kind of like this opening, but what if there's some other opening mm. that's even better? Mm-hmm. So I think mostly, pro- probably, unless you're just like hating life with the opening you play, just kind <laughs> of stick with it. So that's helpful. I think it's really helpful to talk about the FOBO there. And to say, yeah, that's just part of any relationship. And that doesn't mean that maybe you were wrong. That just means that, yeah, this, this, this happens. That, that relationship has run its course. Yeah. It's like you're looking, um, maybe this is where the analogy breaks down is that unlike potential suitors, there is no perfect response to E4. And like you're going to run into problems in whatever you choose. And that doesn't mean that maybe you haven't found, quote, the one. Or maybe yeah. that is the analogy to marriage. I don't know. <laughs> Well, that that brings up something else, though, which is the idea of iterative improvement on the opening, which I think is super important. If you run into some line that causes a problem for you, when you have an opening problem, can you fix it and does it stay fixed? Ooh, what does that mean? Meaning like, suppose someone plays a line against you, you get a bad position or you don't like the position or whatever. I'm following. If someone someone plays that exact same line against you in two weeks or two months, will you be ready with actually a better response? Or will you just be like, oh shit, it's that line I got crushed by last time, but you don't have anything ready, right? But is that a function of whether or not the opening is a good fit or whether or not that you just took the time to learn the character of that position after you got thrashed the first time? No, I think I, I think this is less about is it a good fit and more just do you have a sort of workflow right. that allows you to get better at it? Because my I mean my whole argument for sticking to one opening is that over time you get better at like both both you know more lines and even more so you're better at handling the resulting positions. But if you're actually not getting better at it, then this whole thing doesn't really work. <laughs> and that, but that's also the reason I think this is such a good analogy, Nate, is this idea of before you get married, you have to date. And so mm-hmm. when are you really doing that? When you're first learning chess and you're at that lower level, that's exactly what you would expect. You want to try lots of different things and actually see, 
okay, what are my preferences? What do I like in a relationship? What would be a good fit for me? We do that through kind of the trial and error, right? And then as you're growing in your level and you need to, you know, actually really learn these opening positions way more in depth, okay, now you got to commit. So I think it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And so I wonder though, if part of your last point is when you find that right opening, quote unquote, that you really kind of connect with and the way that you described it, Nate, when you like the positions, you're excited to play it and maybe even it feels comfortable, right? Like a relationship, then you will be more likely to develop that kind of workflow and want to fix those problems and and to look at the lines afterwards. I wonder if it's kind of bi-directional in that way. I think so. Cause yeah, I mean, the more, the more you enjoy the opening, the more you're like, if there's just one line that's causing a problem for you, then you can fix that. And also hopefully you're kind of developing a feel for the resulting positions. So you kind of have a sense of the plans where you're going to put your piece, you know, maybe, maybe even if you don't play the objectively best move in the opening, like it, you still have a chance in the game because you know, you're, you're able to play the position reasonably well after that. Something else that's coming up here that I really like is this idea that, you know, studying the opening is kind of like this iterative or what was the phrase you used? Iterative improvement? Yeah. It, iterative improvement. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea that maybe to sound all, you know, philosophical for a second, studying the opening might actually mean studying yourself more than just, you know, studying the static set of variations, but kind of seeing, okay, when I'm playing, what are the lines where I get thrashed in? And do I have some sort of record of whether it's just a running list or a Lee chess study, or I'm curious what other tools you recommend to even just keep track of? For those of us who can't really remember variations in our head that well, so when it comes to keeping track of what is or isn't working out? How do you or how would you recommend one of your students be in control of that? Yeah, so actually, I, I really love that idea of you're also studying yourself in terms of what kind of lines or situations cause me problems. Like, is there some sort of commonality there? Like, you know, I don't like my king being attacked or um, mm. I struggle to exploit a space advantage or, you know, any, any kind of pattern you can find like that can be really valuable. And also, what kind of positions do I like? Are there some similarity? You know, can I kind of simplify my my repertoire and my job by finding options in different lines that get me into the same type of positions that I know how to play. As far as the mechanics of keeping track of stuff, so actually my biggest single intervention to sort of improve all this is to create your own opening files. Meaning once you get past a very basic opening repertoire, no one can remember all their lines because there's too many. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a record. So there's various things you can use for this. I would say my default recommendation would be Lee Chess studies because they're free. You don't have to download any software. You just go on Lee Chess. They're very easy to use. Um, you don't have to convince us, Nate. Yeah. Our listeners know what Lee Chess is. <laughs> Big Lee Chess fans here. Most professionals use Chessbase, which has some advantages, but it's like fairly expensive and like kind of a pain in the ass to use. So like if you're listening to this and like you don't already have Chessbase, I would not, you know, I would not suggest like buying Chessbase just for this purpose. Yeah. So I think Lee Chess studies are great. I think courses and books can be a great resource, but I do find that making your own files just seems to be incredibly powerful and that you remember the material a lot better. And mm -hmm. it kind of forces you to have a repertoire that's like more personalized. And also it kind of it gives you some insurance against having a repertoire that's too big or complicated because if you have to enter all the lines yourself, you know, like don't enter random long <laughs> lines that you don't understand. Only only enter the lines you can actually remember and you think you're going to use. And it can also, in a way, only kind of be as big as your ambition, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think, I mean, creating the file is, is the starting point, but the, the key thing that it enables is this like iterative improvement of, you know, every, every time you play a game in that opening, the thing I like to do is just go back and add one move. So like, I'll just update the file 
to the first move, I wish I would have played differently. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So instead of saying, oh, well, what I could have done is here's a variation that goes up to move 30 that was played. And so Carlson, whatever, to just say, okay, here's the first time where I, yeah. The the first move that like, if you could play over the game, game, you would have done something different. Like Mm -hmm. that's the move you enter in the file. And then the thing is like, the thing about iterative improvement is if you can actually do it, it'll work. You will, you will inevitably get good. But the the problem is if you don't have the workflow, like if your improvement is not a positive number, then you'll never get the openings together no matter how long you have. So it's totally fine to start very minimal and go very slowly, but you just need to have like this framework in place that it's actually getting better each time. And I think you're also pointing out the risk of switching openings is you're really this minimalist and incrementalist approach is something maybe if you're just picking up chess and this has inspired you to give up the London and switch to the scotch because that's what all the 12 year olds are drinking, then maybe that's not a big deal. And so I think that's also a really nice point that um, part of the reason why people are so down to switch openings is because they kind of want to cram and that can almost feel good, but then you burn out and then you don't do the incrementalist thing. So that's a nice point. Yeah. And I think it's even the value of sticking with something even more so than knowing the lines. It's really the comfort level and having seen everything. And like maybe a lot of people who switch their openings all the time, like will have never even experienced this, but they're like when you play an opening for long enough, Mm -hmm. you do get to a point where like you've sort of seen most of what people will throw at you and you know how to react to it. And that's really satisfying. Like I just had um, a bullet game with the Jobava London, which Mm -hmm. I've been playing for a little while now. It wasn't specific preparation. But every single thing my opponent tried, I had seen before. <laughs> so like everything they tried, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that thing like and like so like every maneuver they did, I would, you know, I just like without thinking, I was just like, oh, that's how I mm, and that's, whoop, 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 you know, like checkmated them in like 15 moves without doing anything because I literally already <laughs> seen like everything they tried to do. That is a good feeling. And even in like bad positions, there's just something comfortable about routine or something comfortable about familiarity. And there can be something that you get used to of like, okay, cool. This is a shitty position that sometimes I run into, but it's my shitty position instead of just like, oh God, this position doesn't feel good. What do I do? I think like in a way, chess feels to me less like one game and more like all these sort of connected sub games. They all kind of have their own strategic rules, which are quite different. So like, when you get experience with an opening, it's it's almost like you're playing a different game and you have to get enough experience with that game to really know how to play it. Mm, so, interesting. so I think that's why it's good to to have a lot of experience in an opening. And that's why you often get crushed when you get into a very unfamiliar position. It's just like you're just playing a different game and you don't really know the rules. That's really well put, I think. So I suppose we can try and like do some sort of horrific segue, but I'd love to hear you talk for a little bit about your book, but I'd also be interested in this context of, you know, we're talking about openings and now we're going to get into this idea briefly of talking about evaluation. Like even when you're trying to add to your opening lines or your own prep or something, you're doing some of your own evaluation. And you are now the author of a book called Evaluate Like a What? Is it? Grandmaster. Why do you want to do that? Haven't you seen Grandmasters on Twitter? I do not want that. That's a terrible yeah, idea. It's, for a, a bunch. it's a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'll evaluate like the random Twitter user asking which side to move in a position that's like put from Black's perspective. That's what I want to evaluate. Like, which way are the pawns going? Sideways. So evaluate like a grandmaster. How do you do this? Have you ever done this? And how can we evaluate our openings like a grandmaster? All right. Yeah. So this book was kind of inspired by engines in that engines typically have two sort of modules, like one for calculation. 
you know, just looking, crunching moves, looking ahead at the moves. But even for an engine, typically you can't calculate lines to checkmate. So like at some point you get to a position that you have to stop at, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to look at that position and say, who's better and by how much? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what evaluation is. These are two kind of fundamental sides to thinking about chess. And we kind of realized that there's a lot of books that specifically address calculation, but very few that specifically tackle evaluation. So we felt like there should be like, like a book that kind of tackles that head on. So it's a workbook style book with a lot of positions that basically you're, you're asked to evaluate. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, like a different to a standard chess workbook because it's, it's not a puzzle in the sense that you have to find a specific sequence of moves. It's more about looking at a position and like seeing, you know, who's better by how much and why, what are the key factors mm-hmm. and developing your intuition there, which I would say that's, that's a big connection with openings is that to build up this intuition where you just look at a position and you have a feeling of who's better and what's going on takes a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's why you need this experience in specific openings. They tend to leave the same structures. You build up that intuition. Right. So you kind of build it up in a sense of chess positions in general, but also in that quite specific sense of in certain pawn structures or, you know, in certain openings, things kind of look a different way and you get a feel for it. Um, one one section that we added that that I thought was like especially fun that I haven't really seen anyone do before is um, we take four positions from like mm-hmm. the same structure or opening mm-hmm. and kind of change things around like you know, what if we take these two pieces off the board? What if we move one pawn somewhere? And so you evaluate all of them. And like, you know, what you find is that like positions that look similar, these subtle differences can actually complete, you know, in some cases change everything from like white is much better to black is much better. So it's sort of a way of fine tuning your sense of what really matters in certain structures. Nate, I love that. That's awesome. And it's nice to think about that type of workbook that is not just purely puzzles and tactics, because we've talked about that quite a bit on the pod, how that can get you so far, but is different than actually doing what you're talking about, about evaluating the feel of a position and who's better and why and what happens if we change the position minutely. That sounds like it's really feeling a gap kind of in the chess literature. Yeah, I think also a nice thing about it is I would say doing this type of evaluation puzzles is not as strenuous as a really hard calculation exercise. Mm. So, Mm. you know, hopefully it's a little bit lighter and more fun than a lot of like workbooks, but you're still getting something valuable out of it. And I just think that skill in general, we kind of don't talk about as much, right? So everyone's working on their calculation, but I don't know how many people are kind of explicitly at that club level, really trying to improve their evaluation skills. So it's just really cool to see a book that hones in on that. Yeah, thanks. I was curious too. So you wrote this book with the co-author. And I'm curious if you want to tell us about that experience or also since as a book on evaluation, did you ever run into or how often did you run into positions where your evaluations were just different or even contradictory? Yeah. So, so my co-author is Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein. So yeah, it was, it was really great working with him. Like, like one thing that was notable for me, was like, so I would say like, I love chess more than the average person. Like I actually, I, I have this one memory from like, there are these like super national tournaments for when you're like, when you're in middle school or high school, mm-hmm. like you play all day, you know, like 12 or whatever hours a day. I remember one time where like, I was there with some friends and we were like driving back to the hotel in a van and I still wanted to play chess and like my, some little like pocket set I had or something. And my friend was like, dude, like, we just played like 14 hours of chess. Like, I don't, I don't want to play chess anymore. And I was like, oh, okay. hmm. interesting. He doesn't want to play chess anymore. Okay. All right. That's, that's weird. Cool. 
But the, the point of the story is like Eugene likes chess more than I do. You know, like every, every time I would talk to him, he has new positions, he has new ideas. He has a real knack for like finding these sort of quirky lines that are really hard for people to deal with over the board. But anyway, yeah, he's always has, has a ton of chess ideas. So he created a lot of the positions and examples for, for the book. Something else when we talk about evaluation and something that's come up on the pod before is that a lot of newer players or lower rated players have this tendency to over rely on calculation. So I was curious whether there are any moments working with Eugene where you were like, wow, even I was still calculating too much or even I was calculating more specifically than him. Mm, yeah, I would say I was able to get you know the, a majority of the problems in the book correct. But I definitely had, I mean, one thing I noticed was I had more blind spots than he did. This mm. is like kind of talking more like, again, about this idea of different sub games or different structures of in the structures I'm familiar with, you know, I think I'm like, I'm pretty good. Like, you know, maybe even the ones I'm really familiar with, I can kind of play at a GM level, but I also have like more blind spots than GM would have. And there are positions or structures that I just don't know. And when I get into them, I will just lose horribly, even to a weaker <laughs> player. So that's definitely one thing I noticed, like blind spots. Mm. So Eugene made this comment of like, if you move White's e-pawn from e5 back to e4, the position would not be nearly as good. Mm. And it turned out like the computer evaluation with the pawn on e5 was like plus four for black. And with the pawn on e4, it was only plus one. So like it was true that the two, you know, the, the position was better for black for these other reasons. But like he was picking up on the fact that like this one piece having this amazing square was actually a huge factor in the whole position, which like, I, I didn't exactly, you know, I kind of knew the bishop was on a good square, but I wasn't really feeling like how important that was. Yeah, yeah. And I think being able to start to be sensitive to those things is super important because something that trips a lot of players up is they want to overgeneralize the patterns they do recognize and then not be sensitive to all the subtleties and then not begin to go where to come with them. Yeah. So this sounds like a great book. Julia, did you have any other things you wanted to ask or Nate, any other things you wanted to make sure to add? No, that was such a beautiful description of the yeah. book, Nate. That makes me want to read it. I don't know if if you guys are in a rush, but I have one more thought. I, th I think yeah. you might you might find interesting on like I don't know how how grandmasters are like how how they crush the rest of us. Which is, so so Eugene showed me this drill, like a, so it's a calculation drill. The setup is you start with a position, but like not like a puzzle. So not a position where there's like there's just one sequence that like wins the game outright. Just mm -hmm. like a complex position. Okay. And the drill is it's a two person drill. One person is doing this. One person is just looking at the position without any assistance. So, like mm. that person is doing the drill. The other pers person has a position open, like with an engine, mm. you know, so on, like on a Lee chess analysis board or like a study or whatever. And the drill is the person who's doing it just starts, ca starts calculating and just say out loud everything you calculate. And the job of the other person is they're entering in everything they say. And if the person gets stuck or blunder, prompt them with a hint. Cool. So it's like if they say, say a, a sequence of moves, and then like they say, like, I don't think this works, but you have the position open with the computer, and mm -hmm. you can see that there's actually a follow up and it does work. You like prompt them and you're like, you know, like, well, do you have a bishop move or, you know, whatever. Just, so one thing about it is it's like, it's kind of like targeted assistance in that, you know, like if you're working on your pull ups and you have a trainer who can just like give you a little push, yeah. like right when you would fail, that's helpful. It's also very, like, I've done this now with several players, and it's really interesting how players of different levels are different. Because, like, to your point, JJ, I would say the thing I notice about Grandmasters is, like, not necessarily that they see longer lines, but that, like, the overall structure of their thinking makes sense. 
Mm. Like they, they will miss things, but the overall way, like the things they're looking at and what they're trying to do sort of holds together and makes sense. And what you find with player, like, you know, even like pretty strong players, like potentially up to expert and masters is like, apart from like missing moves or like making one-off mistakes, often there are like entire assumptions or directions of thinking that just make no sense. They'll analyze three different lines. They're, like their their concluding position of one line is by far the best. But then if you ask them what move they would go for, they'll say like the third line. And you'll be like, wait, I thought in your analysis, like the first line was better. And they're like, oh yeah, right. You know, it's a position where they should be attacking and they're only looking at defensive moves. Or there's a lot of like very big picture things where just the whole way someone's thinking about the position doesn't really make sense. And like that seems totally. to be more the issue than they can't just see six moves ahead in a specific line if they know what it is. Yeah. Oh, that's really well put. Yeah, that's really well put. Nate. And I feel like we kind of touched on that last week when we were talking about chess in the context of anxiety. But we really did get to this place where we were kind of hitting on a similar topic of a lot of people are so concerned with calculating a line correctly but they're not calculating the right line. And I kind of hear you say that below that master level, people are just not even asking the right questions or thinking about the right ideas. So you can have the best quote unquote calculation skills from doing lots of tactics. But if you're not asking the right questions, you're not looking at it the way the grandmaster is looking at it and thinking about the right ideas, you're still going to be totally off and feel really lost. So I think that there is a lot of value in kind of not analyzing, am I answering the question correctly, but am I asking the right question? And that's kind of what I hear you saying. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, one one thing to consider with calculation is if you calculate a long line, unless every move in that line is literally the best move, the line could be totally irrelevant or even horribly misleading. Because if you go to, right. you know, if you calculate six moves and you go down five and your opponent has a move that refutes your whole line, then that's that's way worse than not calculating it at all. And I think I think when yeah. a lot of people start to learn to calculate, they're like, suddenly they have this superpower that they can see into the future. And they're like really excited <laughs> about using it. But it is, you know, it's dangerous. You have to be able to use it properly. Yeah. And this idea, oh, and that's also a really nice point that it's worse that it's worse than not calculating it at all because if it almost works but you missed a move or it almost works but then even you find the move but then you think i have this attack that almost works therefore i should be attacking that's not an evaluation of the position <laughs> that's just an almost correct calculation and so you're like okay well i was close so now i'm going to look for other attacking moves without even evaluating it Actually, I have one friend who I, I played a lot of Blitz with, um, and he made this observation that like he he would go for a lot of tactical sequences against me, and it seemed like very often like the line he had seen was like refuted by like one additional move at the end of the line he hadn't seen. But the observation was like like for a while he thought I was calculating one move further, but then he realized like in general I was just not calculating those lines at all, which mm -hmm. was absolutely true because like. Right. He he was quite a concrete player, so he would always like go for these lines where he like he would do something sort of positionally weird or something mm -hmm. because he thought he had like figured out how to make it work. But he was totally right that like in almost every case I had not even considered the move. So like it wasn't like I was ready with like this refutation. It was like I was just trying to put you know this is like blitz. So I'm just trying to put my pieces on good squares. Like he does something weird, and then generally I was like that looks weird, and you know, and th and then I would have to start calculating and figure figure something out. But like. I'd almost never like seen this type of stuff in advance. But that's so telling. The fact, Nate, that you didn't calculate it 
says something about maybe your intuition, but also just your knowledge of chess of, I didn't calculate that for a reason. It goes against certain principles or certain intuitions I had about the position that told me that this was not a good line to go down, maybe positionally or for another reason. But that's also information, right? And for some reason, Nate, that really makes me think about our entire conversation to connect it back to openings. Because it's this idea of when you're playing and kind of committing to one opening for a long time, and you've seen a lot of positions, one thing I've noticed is that when a player kind of goes out of book and play something I've never seen before, if I've been playing an opening long enough, I might not know exactly how to respond or what the best move is. But since I've never seen it in any of my study or in any of my games, I know it's not the best line. Like I know that there's probably something I can capitalize on because this is so out of left field. So I'm immediately going to start to look for great. Is there an advantage here for me? And you only get that if you're super familiar with a position and can kind of say, hey, that seems not right. And I don't even need to calculate. Yeah, that that's such a huge thing that I see all the time with newer players is their yeah. opponent does something weird and they immediately kind of go into panic mode. Yes. Of, you know, right. my opponent did something crazy. I wasn't expecting I must be in trouble. But it's more more often it's like they did something crazy. It's crazy and I wasn't expecting it because it's a bad move. Right. Yeah, I exactly. So I, I shouldn't be, be panicking. Take advantage of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From getting attacked on the queen side and then opening where they don't usually have queen side play. Chances are they didn't just refute all of my study. Chances are they're just like it's, coming it's, up with a bad weird. Plan. It's weird how ready people are to throw out like all of chess history and principles, like because their opponent, you know, it's like their opponent makes some weird moves. Like it's not developing a piece. It's not controlling the center. It's not doing anything. But yeah, it's easy to go into this like fear response where totally somehow my opponent has refuted all of chess <laughs> knowledge. I see I, that so often. Yeah. I see it so much in chess. Also. Maybe even more in poker, the idea that like if your opponent does something crazy, the only way to beat it is something even crazier. Mm. But I think Andrews Toth says like normal beats crazy. That's really like that's ableist. You know, it it's just like chess is sort of constructed a certain way where some things make sense. So like when your opponent does something that makes no sense, generally you don't go over the top with like something even weirder. You keep doing the norm. Like the reason the normal stuff is normal is because like it mostly works most of the time. Yeah, that's a such a clear point that i agree i think a lot of people don't do but then again maybe you should just sack a bishop on move nine in the <laughs> armageddon championship yeah just uh send a shot across the bow is that a phrase Something i don't like know that. and still take the w right yeah it was sick okay well this was great so nate if people want to read more of your stuff follow your Twitter or purchase your book, what should they do? We'll put this all in the show notes. Right. Okay. So the book is Evaluate Like a Grandmaster. You can, it's on Amazon. So yeah, just, just search for it on Amazon. Yeah. And my Twitter is just Nate Solon. And uh, yeah, I've also got my newsletter, which is zwishenzug.substack.com. I write that one weekly, more or less. Okay. Well, yeah. And you can see all the uh, controversial takes we've alluded to on that Substack as well. And all of that will be in the show notes for the description for this page, along with link to buy our merchandise, among other things. So. Hey, when are, when are you going to uh, release the booty shorts? <laughs> Julia? They don't make... Trust me, I looked neat. <laughs> when Teespring gives me the option to put booty shorts on sale, not only will that happen immediately, but you will be the first to know. And I'll okay. send you a free pair. I mean, do you, I guess I could like, I could just order pants and like do like a sort of cut up tear um 
cutoff kind of situation? Uh, I mean, I guess you could. I don't think it'll be the same as like true form-fitted booty short, but prove me wrong. Buy those, I think, and put that on your Twitter main. That'll (laughs) drive some clicks and I'll be the first to let you know if it meets up to my standard or not. There's no space in chess for booty shorts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the booty shorts speak for themselves. All right. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFuelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it, at (laughs) ChessProblem. Yeah. Yeah.